Good afternoon. Uh, welcome back to the old podcast, which isn't really a podcast, but today we're talking about PE, A and P side, anatomy, physiology. We're going to run through pretty much the whole syllabus and just touch on parts that are quite challenging um, or just sort of um, bring up some other stuff that are important for the exam that's going to be coming up. Okay, so I'm not going to start, normally we would start with um, the skeletal and muscular systems, however I don't feel the need to to go through them. All I would say is skeletal is bones and joints, Um, the joint is where two or more bones articulate, Um, then ligaments is bone to bone, tendons is bone to muscle, what else would I say? Cartilage is a shock absorber. Synovial fluid is a lubrication, uh, a lubricating liquid. Um, joint capsule keeps it all together. And then we have obviously just different types of joint. We have the hinge, ball and socket, and potentially condyloid. Um, different types of movement. You have extension, flexion, Abduction, adduction, dorsium plantar flexion. Um, muscular contractions, we have concentric and eccentric, which are isotonic contractions. Isometric, which is the contraction of a muscle which stays the same length upon contraction. And that's around about it for, for that. So staying on muscles, we're gonna talk about muscular contractions. Um, these occur in motor units which are located uh, within within the uh, muscles and basically a motor unit is the motor neurons uh, which are found within muscle fibers and those two together make a motor unit and um, the motor unit will function uh, to carry the nerve impulses from the brain and the spinal cord to the fibers Uh, which will initiate the muscular contraction. Um, So sending the nerve impulse down to the muscle fibres is basically um, stimulating action potential, uh, which conducts the uh, electrical impulse to occur. Uh, And if we just talk quickly about the process of that, so what happens is we start with stage number one, uh, which is where the nerve impulse is initiated in the motor neuron Uh, so the motor neuron is a little if we imagine it's like a little I don't know bloody like little jelly thing in the body and it sort of it needs that action potential or at least like a little boost to actually get going so once it gets this little boost um, the nerve impulse um, is conducted down the axon of the motor neuron um, because of the action potential and it gets to the synaptic cleft um, and then a neurotransmitter, which I'm going to try and say is called acetylcholine, acetylcholine maybe. Um, that's secreted into the synaptic cleft uh, so that the, the impulse can cross. Um, once it gets to the other side, um, basically we've, we've made it. The little guy, the little nerve impulse has made it and um, the muscle fibre will contract and 
there's a thing called the all or nothing law, which is basically where within the mo uh, motor unit, um, all of the motor unit will contract. Um, so either 100% will contract or none of them will contract. So muscle fibers, three muscle fibers, um, type one, which is a slow oxidative. Uh, this is completely aerobic. Uh, type two, um, type two A, sorry, which is fast oxidative glycotic. Um, and then number three, which is type two B, which is the strongest and is just purely uh, fast glycotic. Um, so essentially the slow one type one they're designed to store oxygen in myoglobin and they process oxygen in the mitochondria uh, which basically allows for aerobic respiration to occur uh, they, they don't produce high amounts of force so quite small but they resist fatigue for quite a long period of time um, and basically this is the best one for endurance events uh, so best for a marathon runner and you'll see that most um, endurance events will be heavily uh, made up of these, this type of um, fibre. And then type 2A, which is sort of the middle one, um, it has, it, it's basically got large force in it. Um, the contractile speed is quite high. Um, it's got a good amount of... Um, sort of middle middle length and middle duration power uh, it, it's good for that sort of event so maybe like an 800 meters because it still uses the um, oxygen within it and it doesn't just use uh, phosphocreatine which in type 2b being the strongest um, it does it is very rich in phosphocreatine levels and um it only lasts for a very short amount, uh, a, sh a short period of time um, because it works anaerobically and due to the fact it's such a high amount of force, um, it can't it can't withhold that for a long period of time. Um, so potentially a couple of things to note that would be quite helpful uh, is if we talk about uh, mitochondria density in each one. In the slow, ox uh, in type 1, there's high density of mitochondria. In type 2A, there's moderate. Type 2B, there's low. Um, phosphocreatine as well. Um, there's low in type 1. There's high in type 2A. And there's high in type 2B. Um, and then the speed of contraction in each one. Uh, slow in type 1 but then fast in type uh, 2a and 2b and our force of the contraction so the the ability to put like how strong that contraction is is low in type 1 but high in type 2a and b um, and then it's easy just to bring that into aerobic and anaerobic capacity um, which yeah, would be quite simple to talk about Okay, so the cardiovascular system, uh, there's two circuits, pulmonary and systemic. Pulmonary, as it has an L in it, P-U-L, in case you couldn't spell it. L for lungs in my head, which means that deoxygenated blood is going from the lungs um, and the heart. And then systemic circuit is oxygenated blood to the body 
and um, deoxygenated blood back to the heart. Uh, so we have uh, we have the heart. It's split into the left side and the right side. And basically, right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, I'm going to really, really quickly whack through the uh, process of um, the blood and how it gets gets around the body uh, or around the heart. Sorry. So we start in the muscles. Um, once there's a muscular contraction, um, the oxygenated blood loses that oxygen because it's just been used. So we're now at the start of the process where the uh, deoxygenated blood has to return to the heart so that it can get pumped to the lungs. So we go uh, muscles. Uh, so we start, say, for example, in the calf, the gastrocnemius, and that goes all the way up into our um, vena cava. Uh, it travels through the vena cava into the right atrium which falls down into the right ventricle. The right ventricle, um, it then moves on up into the, um, uh, sorry, pulmonary artery, and then pulmonary artery takes it all the way into the lungs. The lungs does gases exchange, um, where it then comes back through the pulmonary vein into the left uh, atrium, then the left ventricle, then out the left ventricle through the aorta back to the muscles with oxygenated blood. Uh, so we're going to talk about how the heart conducts. And basically it's a sort of five, six step um, process in how this works. So the way in which we get the left ventricle to pump out blood is we start in the SA node and the SA node generates the electrical impulse and it sort of acts as the pacemaker, um, which determines how quick the uh, your heart rate will be. So once we hit the SA node, it, it pumps out, it pacemates, as it says. Uh, it travels to the AV node, and this acts as a delay, uh, where it, it delays the impulse um, before it travels to the bundles of Hiss. Um, and this is where the impulse is split into two. Uh, so that it can be distributed through each of the uh, ventricles, right and left. Um, and then we go into the bundle branches, um, which basically just carry the impulse to the base, and then into the Purkinje fibres, um, which distributes and causes the, um, the two ventricles to contract. Uh, so we have, we have two types. Um, within this uh, of contraction, there's the diastolic phase, which is the relaxation of cardiac muscle, um, which is where the, um, the blood comes into the heart. And then the second part, which is a systolic stage, uh, which is a contraction of the, contra uh, of the cardiac muscle, um, which basically gets rid of that blood that's just come in through the uh, diastolic phase. And the way to remember this is diastole. Um, obviously, the start sounds like die, as in to die, the verb to die. Um, and if you were dead, you would not be contracting. Um, like nothing would be contracting because obviously your muscles don't work. So the way in which I remember it is I think diastolic counts for no muscular contraction. Um, so relaxing and filling up um, with blood. 
very briefly going to talk about heart rate, stroke volume, cardiac um, output. So a couple of definitions, your heart rate is the number of times the heart beats per minute. Um, your stroke volume is the volume of blood that's ejected from the left ventricle per beat. And the cardiac output is the volume of blood ejected from the left ventricle per minute. And you can work this out by heart rate times stroke volume. Um, the way you can work out your maximum heart rate is your um, is 220 minus your age. So for me, um, being 18, we do 220 minus 18, which is obviously, uh, obviously 202. So my maximum heart rate should be 202 um, beats per minute. And then what else is there to say? Stroke volume. Uh, it depends upon two factors. Uh, factors, the first one being venous return, um, which is uh, basically Starling's law, which I assume I'll talk about in a second. Um, but basically, venous return is uh, the volume of blood that's returning to the heart, and the greater the return of the blood to the heart, the greater the volume of blood that's available um, to be ejected in the uh, systolic stage. And then the elasticity um, of the the um, left ventricle uh, will depend upon how much, uh, so your volume of what can be ejected. So obviously, uh, if you increase your temperature uh, within the heart, you increase the elasticity, you increase your elasticity, you increase your volume that can be ejected. Um, so I think what I'll just briefly run through is a couple of different uh, responses to exercise and uh, also recovery. Um, so the cardiac response, so the cardiac response to exercise and recovery, um, these will all be quite different. However, your heart rate's response to exercise um, is that before exercise, you'd get a small increase in heart rate. This is known as anticipatory rise, um, which occurs due to the hormone adrenaline, uh, which is essentially where you know that you're about to perform and your heart rate increases uh, to get more blood flow to the working muscles um, and obviously getting more oxygen um, to those muscles uh, as well. Then... If we talk about heart rate in the sense that it doesn't necessarily increase like hugely, but it will take a it will take a an increase in into the amount of um, intensity. So the intensity of which you're exercising is proportionate to the increase you'll see in your heart rate. So if I was working at uh, let's say eighty percent. Um, intensity my heart rate would increase 80 percent it's all proportionate um, yeah so stroke volume what's that response to exercise uh, that will increase in proportion to the intensity again of course um, however this is slightly different because it depends on um, the frank starling law uh, which i previously just mentioned quite quickly uh, which is that an increased venous return 
leads to an increased stroke volume due to the increasing um, stretchiness of the ventricle walls, uh, meaning that more uh, volume, higher volume of blood can be ejected. Um, so there's two main things with stroke volume. It is that uh, Starling's law as well as temperature, um, which leads to increased stroke volume. Um, and then, yeah, uh, cardiac output. Obviously, if we just said that heart rate will increase and so will stroke volume due to the formula, cardiac output will also um, increase. However, there is a point at which it will um plateau and it, it can't physically get much higher due to the intensity of which you're working. So the heart is regulated of course, uh, although it is involuntary through the autonom autonomic or autonomic nervous system um, and it is determined by that SA node that I previously spoke about. It can obviously be altered to increase or decrease in heart rate uh, and this happens through the cardiac control centre which is located in the medulla oblongata within the brain. Um, and basically what happens is that there are three different controls uh, which detect different um, changes within, within the body. Uh, so I'll briefly run through them. Um, so let's start with, let's start with hormonal control. Um, so this refers to adrenaline and noradrenaline and that is basically saying an increase in adrenaline would increase the heart rate due to the fact um, you get that anticipatory rise. So that's the, like obviously you get it in within the game, but pre-match you get uh, anticipatory rise. Um, and then oppositely to that you get noradrenaline and uh, that is slowing down um, or decreasing force of the vent uh, ventricle um upon contraction the next one is intrinsic control and this is uh changes in temperature um which will change the elasticity uh, of ventricle walls and basically the other one is to do with blood flow and blood vis blood viscosity can't really say that word um obviously as the temperature does increase uh, blood viscosity increases and vice versa if it doesn't. Um, and then on to the big one, which is neural control. This is the one where you get the most questions from. And you have chemoreceptors, proprioceptors and baroreceptors. So chemoreceptors are um, are used to to locate or to observe and find out about chemical changes in the bloodstream so this could be through an increase in lactic acid um, so the pH levels within that muscle or um, blood flow um, or increased levels of uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen then we have proprioceptors 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 yeah that's the one um, and these are informing the cardiac control center of motor activity, so changes in movement. Um, and then baroreceptors are located in blood vessel walls and they in, uh, inform the cardiac control center of increases or decreases in um, blood pressure. 
Uh, so, from all of this, as I said, if it's trying to increase or decrease, um, if the heart is increasing, um, the oh, sorry, if the medulla oblongata, the cardiac control centre, is increasing the heart rate, it will go through the sympathetic nervous system. Um, and if it's trying to slow it down, it works through the parasympathetic and although this probably isn't most politically correct, the way I remember this is parasympathetic to slow down um, versus sympathetic it, uh, to speed up is someone who is paralysed uh, is probably going to be slower than someone who is able. Um, and yeah, that's all right. You can say that. Yeah, you can say that. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so if we're trying to speed up, we use the fast person. Um, which is a sympathetic and if you want to slow down you use the paralyzed person um, which is a parasympathetic nervous system so going to talk about the vascular system uh, and this is a as it says in in the book that i'm just currently reading from it's a dense network of blood vessels and blood um, in which they carry oxygenated deoxygenated nutrients uh, cells uh, it, it works to remove waste it does all sorts right it's quite clever um, so we have different types of vessels we have arteries veins and capillaries um, they're the main ones and basically your arteries have a large layer of smooth muscles they're the biggest ones and um, they have a high elastic tissue uh, which cushion and smooth the pulsating blood flow um, we'll ignore that part. Uh, capillaries are the smallest and they're used to get as close to the muscles as possible. Um, of course, they're used for gases exchange, which no doubt we'll be talking about in a bit. Um, and then veins um, and also venules, but I don't really like to talk about them. Um, they transport deoxygenated blood from the muscles and organs back towards the um, to the heart. Um, and what happens with all sorts of uh, the, the vessels within our body is they use vasodilation and vasoconstriction. So vasodilation, as it sounds, is the widening um, of the vessels and vasoconstriction is the narrowing of um, vessels so which uh, either way it will increase or decrease um, blood flow uh, so now we talk about venous return um, and basically there's certain different ways um, for vascular shunt to occur um, vascular shunt is basically how the body redistributes um, blood within the body uh, so an example of this would be when we start exercising uh, vascular shunt will redistribute um, blood from the organ organs to uh, the working muscles because obviously that's where uh, most of the blood is required uh, so there are there's certain ways in which we can do this there's um of course like i think if i if i look here there's one 
there's again five different ways um which work as me mechanisms of venous return or vascular shunt that is so we have pocket valves valves stop the um blood flow uh back flowing um there's smooth muscles uh which constricts um to aid the blood flow um to keep in one direction there's gravity which of course um helps the uh blood move back to the heart then you have muscle pump which if you imagine you were standing on a hose so you imagine there's a hose pipe and you're standing on the pose um every time you release your foot from the um hose and then you put it back down you're pushing pushing the blood out and that's how the the muscle works um and then similarly to that you have the respiratory pump um which uh which obviously as it says uh through the systolic phase just pushes the blood through um as if it were like a tube and you were pushing that uh, tube and it was pushing all the further liquid uh, as it went forward respiratory system here we bloody go um, the system has two main functions um, that is inspiration and expiration and then gases exchange um, getting straight into it so how do we respire how do like what is the structure okay so air is drawn in through the nasal uh, you know let's just keep it simple air is drawn in through the nose and mouth right it goes through the nose and mouth into the um, trachea um, the trachea which is the windpipe wax it down into your lungs uh, and it goes from the bronchi um, into the bronchioles uh, so there's one bronchi which breaks into the bronchioles um, and then from that we go bronchioles to alveoli which is situated at the end and they're the little small air sacs where gases exchange will occur. So the uh, respiratory system comes to three different parts, the breathing rate, tidal volume and minute ventilation. Uh, your breathing rate is the number of inspirations or expirations taken per minute. Uh, your tidal volume is the volume of air, the volume being an important part, uh, which is inspired or expired um, in one breath. Um, and as you'd expect, your minute ventilation is the volume of air inspired or expired per, um, per minute, which you can work out through tidal volume times frequency frequency referring to um, breathing rate um so we'll just go quickly like i did for the cardiac we'll go through the respiratory 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 response to exercise um so upon exercise as you imagine as you can um you can you can think about your breathing rate will increase uh, due to the the fact that it needs to get more oxygen in and um, of course as you increase the intensity you begin to breathe hot, uh, heavier and then your tidal volume um, it will increase proportionately to your uh, intensity uh, however it will plateau 
um, upon one point because it can't allow for uh, your breathing rate to keep up with uh, with that and then you have minute ventilation and as we said with the cardiac if both um, both parts of the equation increase so does minute ventilation um, I think it's important to note uh, here what do we have here the different volumes so normal person so if you're an untrained performer at rest you're likely to take around 12 to 15 breaths a minute your tidal volume is likely to be 0.5 of a litre and your um, minute ventilation um, is likely to do, uh, to be around six or seven and a half litres per minute okay so this part is quite difficult this is the mechanics of breathing and um, going to talk about the mechanics of inspiration and expiration both in rest and also um, uh, in during exercise as well so trying to break it down quite simply there's a couple of there's maybe three or four things that we talk about when we talk about the mechanics of breathing so the first part is the rib cage we talk about where the rib cage goes um, and how it does that uh, the second part is the intercostal muscles. We talk about um, the contraction or relaxing of intercostal muscles. Um, then we talk about the thoracic cavity um, and how much space it has. Uh, and then we talk about the pressure in the thoracic cavity as well. Um, so in inspiration, I'm going to talk about inspiration alone and then it will just be the opposite um, during rest so inspiration uh, at rest is an active process um, and what happens is our external intercostals they contract um, which basically allows for the rib cage to go out up and out as they like to say um, our diaphragm, which I didn't just mention, but it's also another really important part, the diaphragm contracts and flattens. Um, and basically what this does is that increases the thoracic cavity and decreases the pressure, which draws, um, uh, which draws the air into the, the uh, thoracic cavity. Um, and then obviously uh, with expiration, it's just sort of the opposite way around. In expiration, what happens is the intercostals will also, uh, sorry, the intercostals will relax and they will bring your rib cage down and in. Your diaphragm will relax, uh, which means that it will increase in size, um, meaning that the thoracic cavity will decrease in size, meaning that the pressure will increase. Um, so the uh, the air within the, uh, within that um, thoracic cavity very quickly tries to escape. Um, so that is at rest, and then upon um, exercise, it does change um, because inspiration is always an active process. However expiration at rest is not active um, but it will become um, active in uh, during exercise 
So as we increase the demand for oxygen um, during exercise, they have to increase the level of uh, minute ventilation, which again just basically means that you have to improve the um, inspiration and the expiration process. So for inspiration during exercise, it's the same thing. However, we uh, recruit extra muscles to um, help uh, give a larger force of contraction, and that's through the sternocleidomastoid and um, your pectorals uh, minor, uh, which just basically makes it easier for the rib cage to increase. Uh, now, as I really briefly said, um, expiration at rest is passive. However, during exercise, it becomes active um, so that you can really improve the um, you can really improve the level of contraction and how efficient that's done. So this time, the relaxing the re the relaxation of external intercostals uh, it doesn't provide uh, provide enough force. So we use the same process. However, additional muscles are recruited um, to and they contract. Uh, and this happens through your internal intercostals, um, which brings it down and in with some force. Um, and then your obliques will also help, as, as well as your abdominals, um, which obviously just help to really accentuate the force of bringing, um, bringing the ribs down. Okay, so gases exchange, nice and easy, very quickly as well. And it's the diffusion of oxygen and carbon dioxide um, at the capillaries and alveoli. Um, alveolo, sorry, alveoli gives us the oxygenated and uh, capillaries give us the uh, deoxygenated carbon dioxide. Uh, so that's sort of as much as we really need to know about it. Uh, obviously, external and internal respiration um, is part of it, and the internal respiration is to do with the uh, the blood and the alveoli, and external respiration is to do with the muscles um, and the blood. Um, and now I'll talk very quickly about um, the bore shift and the disassociation disassociation of oxygen from haemoglobin. Briefly going to discuss disassociation of oxygen from oxyhemoglobin. Um, through the Bohr shift um, there's basically three ways in which uh, in which disassociation of oxygen from haemoglobin occurs. Uh, this is firstly the increase in temperature uh, secondly, an increased production of um, carbon dioxide, uh, which would raise the partial pressure of carbon dioxide within the blood. And then, obviously, uh, an increase in production of uh, lactic acid, uh, which lowers the pH within the muscle, uh, within the blood, sorry. So the Bohr shift is a move in the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve to the right. And it's caused by an increased acidity in um, in the bloodstream. And basically what happens is during exercise, there's more of a uh, demand for oxygen in the muscles 
as opposed to the blood because you want to be using aerobic respiration for as long as possible uh, and it's quicker to to gain that straight from um, the muscles as opposed to the blood so the oxygen will disassociate um, from oxyhemoglobin to make oxymyoglobin uh, or, or to bind with myoglobin within the muscles um, and as I've just mentioned, the three things, uh, the temperature just makes that dif uh, that diffusion, that change easier. Um, if there's an increased production of carbon dioxide, it makes the diffusion gradient uh, steeper. Uh, and again, lactic acid is a similar thing. Okay, so we're going to move away from all of that sort of stuff now and talk about diet and nutrition. Um, and I'm, I'm probably going to try and do this all in quite a a hefty bunch so there's going to be a lot to take in uh, but as it's just quick and to get through um, so for a healthy and balanced diet um, a male should be intaking around 2550 calories a woman 1940 calories a day um, it should be approximately 55% carbs, 15% protein, and no more than 30% fats. Um, of course, you need to make sure you're getting your waters, uh, your vitamins, uh, and minerals within that as well. Um, carbs, they're an essential part of diet uh, for energy production. Um, of course, they are the preferred fuel for exercise, um, and they they're needed when you do glycolysis which is used in two of the energy sources um, uh, or energy systems in fact proteins uh, of course they're really helpful for uh, the growth and repair of muscles uh, tissue uh, muscle tissue cells all of that sort of good stuff and then our fats uh, they provide uh, the body with again energy production for sort of longer longer format things um so you do need these fats however you want to make sure um that you're eating unsaturated fats more so uh, because they're really beneficial for uh, oxygen um oxygen saturations blood flow uh, reducing inflammation uh improving your endurance and recovery rates um, so you, you get these in things such as fishy oils, uh, apparently you can get them in avocados, and saturated fatty acids you get in butter, uh, bacon, and things like this will increase your um, uh, uh, risk of cardiovascular diseases. And then, as I said, you need other parts that aren't necessarily mentioned, but you need your minerin uh, minerins? minerals uh they are inorganic nutrients uh which help to maintain healthy functions within the body and the main ones that we talk about is calcium which is important for bones um iron which is important for hemoglobin uh, enzyme reactions and obviously our immune systems and then phosphorus which is again good for energy production bone health uh, and then we have vitamins, uh, which is quite a confusing part, but they're also, again, really important for maintaining body functions. And um, we have two types. There's the fat-soluble fat vitamins, um, which are stored in the body, and they're found in your fatty foods and animal products. 
um, and this is vitamin A, D, E and K. Um, so these are your fat ones and then you have water soluble vitamins um, which are not stored um, and therefore you need to sort of take in every day because you can't rely on them just being in your body and this is vitamin B and vitamin C. Um, I will run through what each vitamin does actually. So vitamin A is good for, anti that's an antioxidant. Uh, it's really important for eye, cell and bone growth. Vitamin D is important for bone health and protects against cancer and heart diseases. Vitamin E is an antioxidant and is again important for skin, eyes, immune systems. And vitamin K is important for blood, clot, uh, blood clots. Um, and then we go into our water-soluble ones, which we have to take in on the daily, which is vitamin C, uh, important for skin, blood vessels, tendons, ligaments, bone health. Vitamin B uh, is important for breaking down food um, and keeping a nice, healthy, excuse me, nervous system. Um, as well as all of these things, we need fibre. Fibre is found, obviously, in your cereals, uh, your breads, your beans, fruit lentils uh what else can i think of did i say veg i don't know why i said vegetables but vegetables and fruit um and yeah we need these these are really good for um keeping i think it's your yeah your large intestine keeping the function of that quite healthy and keeping those um cholesterol risks down uh, due to healthier um airways uh, and things like that and then we have water, of course. Um, water actually accounts for two-thirds of body weight um, and is obviously one of the most important things for chemical reactions in the body. Uh, we have blood plasma, which is actually 90% water, um, and it will carry around glucose to the muscles. Uh, obviously really important for regulating temperature um, through cardiovascular drift, uh, so sweating um, and uh when you get vapour, so when you're on a, a really cold night and you're playing rugby and everyone's steaming, um, obviously that is the water in your body. Uh, it's key for hydration, keeps you uh, keeps you concentrated, reduces the chance of strokes. Um, oh, what other things can I think of? Poor concentration, uh, dizziness, fainting, sort of that sort of stuff, uh, which you obviously get through dehydration. Um, and so I'll move on to energy intakes and any energy expenditures now. So here we're going to talk about energy intake expenditure um, and other things. Um, so energy is the ability to perform or to work. Uh, energy expenditure, as you can imagine, is the sum of your basal me metabolic rate and um how much energy that you expend through physical activity uh, throughout the day. Uh, and then your basal metabolic rate, your BMR, is the minimum amount of energy that is required to sustain a central physiological function just completely at rest. Um, and it says here, actually, which can account for as much as 75% of total energy expenditure. So say you did nothing in a day and your body personally required let's say 724 calories to to function um 
you would have to at least take 724 calories within a day um, in order to sustain essential life basically um what else have we got here your bmr is obviously different it, it does change over times um and as you get older people seem to think that it gets worse however it's not necessarily true um your physical activity energy expenditure is the total number of calories uh, which is required to perform the task uh, which can be used through your met values which is your metabolic equivalent value uh, which is a ratio of performance metabolic rate met metabolic uh, metabolic rate to their resting metabolic rate um, so for example if you had a met value of around seven like it, it works on a continuum in which you get certain um, values so a seven obviously um, in one thing is not necessarily as high as like a 14 in playing 16 hours worth of football which it wouldn't be but for example of course um, and you basically the more exercise you do the higher your calorie intake needs to be to break even of course as you can imagine the way in which you gain weight is you have a calorie surplus meaning that the calories that you take in is more than the calories you burn. And on the other hand, a calorie deficit is how you lose weight. And this is where your calories out outweigh your um, calories that are coming in. Um, and basically through this, you, you get an energy balance and you could put it on a s imaginary scales and find out um, if you would be weight gaining or weight lossing. Um, on a daily okay so going to talk about urge chronic aids it's a, sub a substance object or method used to improve or enhance performance uh, there's different groups and within the groups there's certain um, examples of, of this so start with the pharmacological aids um, and these are a group of aids that are taken to increase the level of hormone or neural transmitters that are naturally produced by the body um, and there are three, uh, three types within this as the anabolic steroid, EPO and human growth hormone. So obviously anabolic steroid is a illegal hormone, a synthetic hormone that resembles testosterone and it will increase your muscle mass, uh, muscle strength, uh, increase speed of recovery and increase your intensity and duration of training. Then we move on to EPO, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce the full name which is naturally is produced in the body however when you use it in this form it um it will try to increase the epo and it is um it's traditionally used for red blood cell production that's what it's responsible for um however as like as i'll say in a second there's lots of uh, risks with this the final one is human growth hormone um, which is a synthetic copy of the natural produced growth hormone within our bodies and um, essentially what happens is it increases your muscle mass and strength uh, increases your fat metabolism so you can decrease the mass of your fat uh, increases speed of recovery and increases training times 
uh, and this is what I was going to say, the risks are that you have abnormal bone and muscle development. Um, with all of them, you have the risk of organ failure due to enlargement of the organs. And, um, excuse me, you have the increased chance of blood clots or heart failures, increased risk of infections, and it can actually affect your personality in some cases. Um, so then we have physiological aids, which is a group of ergonomic aids, um, which are used to increase the rate of adaptation by the body uh, to increase performance. And this includes, uh, again, three blood doping, intermittent hypoxic training, IHT and cooling aids. So blood doping is an, it's an illegal method um, of increasing the red blood cell production within a body. Uh, so the uh, so there's a certain amount of blood that is removed from the athlete uh, and then put into a fridge and then after uh, or pre-event they will inject themselves with the um, blood cells that they've taken out and that will obviously improve the red blood cell production uh, or the red blood cell uh, volume within the body then we have IHT um, and this is where you train under hypoxic um, conditions which is where there's a lack of oxygen and um, due to this the partial pressure of oxygen is a lot lower which make it a lot harder to um, respire um, and which will increase the red blood cell um, and haemoglobin volume um, and then which what do we have we have finally we have cooling aids and you can use these in uh, different different parts you can use them in pre-event um, injury treatment and post-event uh, as well as during the event in fact so pre-event you would use things such as ice vests um, towel wraps uh, and this can just be used to decrease the temperature of the body uh, which could be causing certain things such as dizziness dehydration um, or cramp uh, it decreases the chance of cardiovascular drift um, during the event you can use the same sort of things ice vests um, potentially in cricket you may have um, ice packs that come on and you can place them on your head when you're in the breaks to just again reduce that dizziness and, and uh, cardiovascular drift post event you have things such as ice baths uh, contrast therapy um, what else do we have contrast therapy hot baths cold baths um, Cry, cry, cryotherapy I believe the word is um, and you could also use this in injury treatment uh, you use cooling aids such as ice packs sprays like deep heat and um, deep freeze I believe there is now um, and this is just to reduce the swelling and reduce the pain um, by vasoconstricting the vessels within um, the body uh, and of course you can obviously use the cryotherapy and all of that and contrast uh, therapy for that sort of stuff um, and the benefits of this is that it reduces your body temperature it decreases sweating dehydration uh, decreases your chance of doms uh, so these are all quite quite helpful ones however they can be somewhat dangerous uh, of course blood doping you're subject to organ issues um infections so on so on 
Uh, so moving on to nutritional aids, which is, I believe that's the, is that the last one. There's quite it's quite a hefty amount of nutritional aids um, within here. Um, so the first part can be basically your composition and timings and the amount of meals uh, that you eat. Obviously, pre-event, we can talk about um, carbo-loading. Um, what else can we talk about? Caffeine. You can talk about post, uh, sorry, pre-workout. Um, during events, you often hear um, SIS gels being used, so glucose gels being used. And then post-event, it should be... Uh, you should be trying to eat within 30 minutes um, of the of the exercise. Um, so as I said, glycogen loading, which is carbo loading. Hydration obviously is quite an important part uh, throughout the games or throughout activities. Performance should be trying to stay hydrated, um, taking sips because this will reju uh, reduce the uh, heat uh, of the body and uh, reduce chances of uh, what I think of dizziness, fainting, um, loss of concentration, and basically the hydration will increase your blood viscosity. Um, and what else can it? It can obviously it will help to um, keep you into the game and concentrating, so you don't lose that uh, cognitive function. Uh, we can talk about hypotonic solutions, uh, isotonic solutions and hypertonic solutions. Um, again, all of this is just glucose, trying to improve your glucose stores. Creatine supplements, uh, obviously is used in phosphocreatine, which is a, which is used in the ATPPC system, which is obviously that really strong and powerful system. Um, which is used for anaerobic um, anaerobic activities. Caffeine is of course a stimulant uh, and it will heighten the CNS. Uh, it will also sort of work in a way to increase awareness um, and nerve stimulation. However, I tell you a bad thing about that is that it works as a diuretic uh, and it can lead to dehydration and... Um, a serious amount of pooing, funnily enough. And then we come on to bicarbonates, which is an alkaline, which acts as a buffer uh, to neutralise uh, lactic acid. Um, so it's, it's very good to sort of eat before um, anything where you're working in like a 400 potentially, and you could potentially have that lactic acid in the lactate, anaerobic lactate system. Um, and then nitrates. Uh, is just used to increase blood pressure, uh, sorry, reduce blood pressure, increase blood flow. Uh, and this is really good for increasing the uh, intensity of performance and delays the fatigue. And I believe that's about it for ergiconic aids. So we'll move on to uh, training methods and periodization. Okay, so into year two, we're talking about epoch uh, and recovery 
uh, altitude and heat. And first we start with epoch, which is excess post exercise of oxygen consumption. And this is the volume of oxygen that's consumed after exercise to return the body to uh, a rest state. Um, and basically this is what, what we use to repay an oxygen debt or an oxygen deficit um, from exercise which has occurred. Uh, we do this through two types of um, epoch, the fast and slow component um, and it is used in every single form of um, recovery and exercise. So, oh bloody hell. The first one is the fast alactacid component. Um, this is this is of course known. Is this the first stage? Uh, obviously, it's known as fast alactacid because it's before lactic acid, um, and basically it accounts for around ten percent of epoch. Um, it's approximately one to four liters worth of um, oxygen needed, and. Um, this one is all about replenishing blood um, and mus muscle oxygen. So, of course, the oxygen that has been used uh, in the hemoglobin and myoglobin needs to um, be replenished. And then, obviously, um, this is useful for the resynthesis of ATP and the PC stores. Um, and the, the actual definition is... The initial fast stage of epoch where oxygen consumed within three minutes resaturates hemoglobin and myoglobin stores and uh, provides the energy for ATP and PC to resynthesize. Um, and that's pretty much all we need to know for that. And then the next part is the slow lactacid um, component of recovery. And this occurs after the fast one has occurred. Um, and this is around, or actually approximately five to eight litres worth of um, oxygen. Um, and this one is all about provision of energy to maintain uh, ventilation, circulation, body temperature, and to basically flush out lactic acid and replenish the glycogen stores. Um, so if we split it down into three main parts of how it manages to do this, um, how it manages to get rid of the lactic acid, which is essentially the most important part of this one. Um, there's three parts to it. So approximately 50 to 75% of the pyruvic acid is oxidized um, in the mitochondria. Um, and therefore it re-enters the Krebs cycle and electron transport chain in order to be uh, to produce carbon dioxide and water. Um, which basically allows for it to be um, uh, oxidized and we can get rid of it just through breathing, sweating um, and things like this, uh, like weeing, for example. Um, and then approximately 10 to 25% of pyruvic acid is reconverted into glucose. So um, obviously if it can't be, um, if you can't get rid of it through breathing, sweating, weeing etc uh, it'll be reused for um, glycogen stores and um, the third one is this is very very small amounts here um, and this stuff is converted into proteins um, and then again that's just removed through um, urine and sweat 
um, in the form of liquids. Um, so the way in which Epoch works is that you can you can slow it down. You can slow down the the sort of times it takes for Epoch to occur. Uh, you can do this by a warm up. Um, obviously, if you use a warm up, it will increase the um, the heart rate. Uh, therefore, it will accelerate the use of the aerobic system, uh, meaning you don't have to use the anaerobic system. Um, and basically, the oxygen deficit or the oxygen debt um, is basically smaller, so paying it back is a lot easier. Uh, and then the other thing you can do is an active recovery. So as opposed to just sort of finishing and then that's it, you go home and have a beer, you can actively cool down to... Um, uh, help the muscles to flush out all of those um, uh, lactic acid and other byproducts that come from it uh, and this is obviously in the form of just a moderate or sort of small uh, low intensity uh, exercise to get rid of it so like a walk or a very slow jog um, you can use cooling aids which we spoke about in the ergoconic stuff um, uh, that it depends upon the intensity of your training uh, so, for example, the higher the intensity, the greater um, the greater the epoch will be. Uh, you can work on your work to race uh, work to relief ratios. The nutrition, of course, if you use a buffer uh, through the bicarbonates and nitrates, that will help you to uh, reduce the uh, or speed up the process of epoch, and. That is round about it for Epoch. That's that's pretty much the whole thing. Um, obviously, it's just about repaying that debt back. And I think the final thing I'm going to talk about is just rehab of injury. Uh, I've sort of skipped out quite a bit in injuries, but all of that is fairly simple. Just acute, chronic, um, soft and hard tissue. And other than that, it's all like straightly, uh, fairly straightforward. So we talk about rehab of injury. There's three stages, early, mid and late. The early stage is gentle exercise, uh, just encouraging damaged tissue to heal. The mid stage is progressive loading of connective tissues and bones to develop strength. And the late stage is functional exercises and drills, excuse me, just to ensure that the body is ready to return. Um, so you can, obviously there's treatment methods. One of them is stretching. Um, one of them is massage. There's cold heat and contrast therapies, um, anti-inflammatory drugs, um, which is NSAIDs or NSAIDs, uh, physiotherapy, surgery. Um, obviously, you have different types of surgery. You either have um, uh, how do you say, arthroscopy, which is a minimally invasive surgical procedure, uh, which is also known as keyhole surgery. Um, and then obviously the other one is open surgery, uh, which is done under general or local anaesthetic. And um, they have to basically reconstruct the damaged structure. Um, and then obviously the treatment of common injuries would be through fractures, um, joint injuries. Uh, what else have we got? Exercise induced muscle damage. And that's about it. Uh, all of which can be fixed sort of through the the different things that I've just sort of mentioned, uh, and that's about it, I think.
Uh, and that is literally the whole of the A&P for what's coming up uh, in my exam, personally. I uh, obviously missed out quite, quite a lot of stuff. There's no biomechanics in there. Um, so there's parts missing. And within the spec, there's parts I didn't go through necessarily due to the fact it'll end up being four hours long. Um, but yeah, I'll tell you what, if you enjoyed it, um, yeah, bloody drop a like or whatever you do on wherever you're watching it from and catch you later. Have a good one.